Hello and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. Hey, welcome to today's podcast. I want to start out by giving a shout out to my friend Dom Hodgson's podcast, The Poodle to Pitbull Pet Business Podcast. If you're unsure about where to start with the business side of dog training or dog walking, then their podcast is great. It's one of the few podcasts I listen to every single episode of, so I highly recommend you subscribe to The Poodle to Pitbull Pet Business Podcast. I also offer video call consultations for those of you that are lacking confidence and want a bit more mentoring from someone that is experienced in the industry. If you're a dog trainer that has questions about getting started, then you can book a video call with me at nickbenger.com slash book. Today, I'm talking to Malena DiMartini. Malena is the author of Treating Separation Anxiety in Dogs and has focused exclusively on separation anxiety cases since 2001. She's an international speaker and runs a certification program for trainers that are looking to improve their ability to take on separation anxiety cases. So let's get into it. Hello, Melena. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Nick. It's lovely to be here. No, I'm so excited to talk to you. You know, I've wanted to do an episode on separation anxiety for a long time. And, you know, when I went out there and started looking up more information about this, because this is, a, is an exciting episode for me as well, because I'm quite ignorant of how you go about um, doing stuff with separation anxiety. And I think that a surprising amount of people that work in our industry actually are. You know, I know that you've covered that subject before, the amount of people that actually avoid separation anxiety entirely. Right. Indeed. Indeed. I, um, I'm actually surprised when I look through lists of trainers sometimes uh, in various organizations and they will say, human directed aggression, check, yes. Dog, dog aggression, check, yes. You know, all obedience, all this, all that. Separation anxiety, no. You know, it's so funny. I don't know if you caught the episode with Michael Shikashio. Ah? Uh? Did you catch that one? No, I did not. Well, you... I'm so sorry. I haven't seen it. I will definitely catch it, though. You got a mention, and um, it was so funny because Michael was saying the exact opposite about separation anxiety. He said he would rather have, he'd rather work with a German shepherd that wants to bite him in the face than separation anxiety. And um, yeah, so it's just so funny that you mentioned that then. Yeah, no, I mean, so many trainers run from separation anxiety like there's no tomorrow and that they absolutely would much prefer to get, you know, you know, uh, in the face of an aggressive dog than to to work with separation anxiety. Well, before we start geeking out about separation anxiety and really getting into how that works, let's go a little bit into your background, because I know that, you know, you retrained, essentially, didn't you? You were a corporate statistician and then you and 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 that's interesting because you know when I found that out about you, I thought that must have been quite a challenging job to leave because I imagine that's a job that's quite paid well. And then to take that risk and become a dog trainer, I'm wondering what made you want to take that risk. Wow, 
<clears throat> you will be surprised when I tell you that <clears throat> that was actually a loaded uh, question, but I'm happy to answer it. Um, <clears throat> excuse my, my throat here. <clears throat> my, um, while I was in corporate America, I, uh, and I was, I was actually fairly young, um, and went up through the ranks fairly quickly. Um, but I got my first dog as an adult, uh, a beautiful Doberman Pinscher. Uh, and, uh, he was amazing and, uh, the softest dog you could ever imagine. Uh, not soft from a touch. Well, that too, but also just soft in, in personality and temperament. And, um, I knew nothing about training dogs and I hired a trainer who, uh, came to help me, who turned out to be sort of a balanced trainer, um, more slightly on the aversive side, but but really was trying to be as positive as possible, I think. Um, and one of the things that he was unable to execute with me, the trainer was unable to execute with me, was a, a reliable recall, um, because he was using tools that were not particularly effective, um, in, in my opinion, looking, looking back retrospectively. Uh, and I was not going to use a shot collar or anything like that. So he was using, you know, long lines and, um, <clears throat> you know, um, a variety of methods that just weren't, were not working. Um, I moved to a new corporate job in San Francisco and a series of events happened. And, um, while there was a, um, a bunch of folks at my house, my dog got out and, um, and was running up the street and I was calling him and he was like, Oh, this is that chase game, you know, cause he had no reliable recall. Um, and we both ended up running into the middle of the street, uh, and we both ended up getting hit by a car. Um, uh, and, um, he, did not he he the the police came it actually turned out to be a drunk driver that skidded off the road and ran into us and um and uh the police came and um they were so gracious they scooped up my dog in a blanket they threw me in the the police car lights on and everything we they rushed us to the emergency veterinary hospital uh i was only mildly scraped up um and um my dog died at the door of the veterinary hospital. And, uh, wow, we started off on a light note, didn't we? And uh, that day, I swore that I would learn how to train dogs in a manner that would keep them safe. And um, I, a few weeks or maybe a month or so later, I quit corporate America, took a sabbatical, um, and, um, I signed up for Gene Donaldson's Academy for Dog Trainers. Um, well, and that was the transition. Thanks so much for uh, telling that story right off the bat. Wow. That's, uh, yeah, I can, I can imagine that's quite a, an emotional story for you. And that's, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I've never heard a story like that. I mean, yeah, that's incredible. That really is incredible. And I imagine that that, that explains a lot of the reason that, you know, you, you have such a drive and a motivation to, to help dogs, given that you've been through something that traumatic. 
Absolutely. And when I first started training after I graduated Jean's program, I took on all manner of cases, um, you know, aggression and and, uh, regular, you know, jumping and mouthing and, you know, all, all sorts of stuff. <clears throat> but separation anxiety found its way to me. I mean, I, I in a weird way, I feel like, uh, you know, not to be a little woo-woo, but I feel like separation anxiety chose me. I did not choose it. Um, and, um, and, and then it became not very many years after I started training, it really became my passion to understand more, learn more, research more, do more, try more things. Uh, and, um, and I, and I've been fortunate to have so many people support me and, and be able to help me understand better and better along the way. When you, when you did make that decision to go through the Gene Donaldson Academy and, and you wanted to become a dog trainer, did, how, what was people's reaction, right? People, did people kind of think, you know, like you're nuts to leave this job and, and decide to go this route or were people supportive or what was the reaction? Well, I can tell you my parents were not supportive. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was not until I published my book that my parents finally decided, well, okay, I guess you're, you're doing okay now. Uh, which is funny because publishing a book, you know, is certainly not a moneymaker. Uh, but they somehow felt validated that at least I published a book. So therefore I must be, you know, doing okay. Okay. So, um, so even in spite of the fact that your parents weren't very happy about it, you decided to take this sabbatical. Is that something that you did with your work's permission? I did. Uh, I did. And um, they, um, I, I will say that my work at the time, a, a wonderful company um, that, that, that in San Francisco, um, because I had, you know, just lost my dog. And I said, I, I'm, I'm a wreck. You know, I, I need time to, to process this. And um, I felt a tremendous amount of guilt, as you can imagine, for my dog's death. And um, so my company said, yeah, take, take the time off, et cetera. Uh, and uh, so I did that with the company's permission, but it was very quickly thereafter that I realized that I was not going to go back. Uh, and so I, you know, I quit my job and, and went straight into full-time dog business stuff. Uh, and I, and I will say like most dog trainers uh, or many, um, I had to take the road of, you know, I was walking dogs in the morning and, uh, and then, you know, taking a few training clients and then, you know, doing some work at the shelter and then taking more training clients later in the evening and maybe walking another dog group in the middle of the afternoon. And I was just barely scraping by. Um, <clears throat> but, um, but it eventually, you know, started to make ends meet. Well, I think we've all certainly been there and I'm sure that a lot of people listening are in that situation right now, but you know, from the outside looking in, you know, as I, you know, when I was to come across you, one thing that is immediately obvious when you start looking into your stuff is actually it all seems like a very polished thing, you know, like you, you, you look like you, you understand the business aspect of things and you, you know, it seems like you've got it kind of sorted out or figured out. 
Yeah, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's really nice of you to say that. Um, well, no, I will say this. Um, I think that one of the areas in the dog industry, uh, and when I say the dog industry, or I should say the animal industry, I mean everything from pet sitters, dog walkers, dog trainers, veterinarians, veterinary behaviorists, uh, behaviorists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think one of the things that's missing for many people is a business, uh, is the business side of things, right? Um, and, and that is true for many professions. Um, but in many professions, for instance, medicine, right? A lot of doctors, like general practitioners, don't know how to run a business, but they, they have a lot of support to do so. Uh, and they, you know, they, they learn certain things along the way, um, uh, within their, um, within their college environment and university environment. We don't really get that very much in this industry. I, I don't think, um, we don't have, we have some resources. Um, uh, but I remember, um, you and I were just talking before we started, Nick, and I was saying that I was speaking, uh, that I spoke a couple years ago in the UK. And, um, I, um, I had a colleague of mine join me who you may or may not know, Veronica Bautel from DogBiz. Yeah, and of course you know. Of I, course, you I've know. read uh, Veronica's book. Oh, lovely, lovely! You have to interview her if you have yet to do so. Yeah, no, she's not been on yet. Yeah, we'll talk about that after as well. Then, okay, we shall. Um, but I, I had her join me, and she did this one small one-hour segment in the middle of my sort of eight-hour day, just about like, hey, you know, this is the way to package things. This is some business savvy, you know, advice to give you guys. And I think that uh, as much as everybody was thrilled to learn about separation anxiety, her business advice sort of outshone the day because people were surprised about like, oh, wow, you can charge, you know, appropriate amounts for this. You can, you know, and she's like, not only can you, but you must, you know, uh, and uh, and so she, she sort of laid out, you know, you've got you've got to be a professional uh in in both aspects in the business side of things and in the dog training side of things and um and i i'm a big believer of that and because having come from corporate america i think i had somewhat of a background in you know running running business the business side of things and understanding that things need to be professionally handled yeah no i'm really glad you mentioned that because that was a big turning point for me as well, this idea of kind of premium pricing. And that was something that was taught to me by Dominic Hodgson, who is kind of, you know, sits in that kind of role in, in the UK. He talks a lot about the business stuff. But one thing I was wondering as you were talking then is, and I don't think it was, but the separation anxiety as a speciality, that wasn't a business decision. It was more something you fell into, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it was not a, a business decision at all. Although retrospectively, I would say that um, for people that 
doesn't have to be separation anxiety, but for people that want to have a niche because they're like, gosh, I love training puppies or I love doing aggression or I love doing separation anxiety or I love doing whatever it is, um, I think that can help set them apart. Um, I don't think everybody has to have their own, you know, nuance. Um, but, but I do think that that can, that can give them an edge in, in, in their business model. Um, so, but no, it was not a, it was not a preconceived, um, idea. As a matter of fact, um, I think I went down that road kicking and screaming saying, I'm not going to do this all the time, but, um, but it just sort of developed the way it developed. And now I'm, 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 you know, quite happy that it did because I love what I do. So what was the difference then at that point to where you're at now? Because now, if I'm right, you, you understand, um, you and you, um, oh God, you enjoy doing the separation anxiety cases, whereas then it was a case of kicking and screaming and, and not enjoying it. So w- what changed? Great question. Um, well, the very first case that I ever took, I was, I was a very green, uh, newbie, um, uh, trainer and it went swimmingly. And I was like, I'm the queen of separation anxiety. I'm so great. You know, I, I got a little big for my britches there for a moment, uh, thinking, you know, I solved this great separation anxiety case. Uh, and then the second case that I took, um, you know, crashed and burned. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I uh, that dog literally now this is as you can imagine, this is almost this is about 18 years later, that dog literally just recently died. Um, uh, and, you know, I'm sorry to say he was a wonderful dog, Orville. Um, and the second the second case and um he was a little min pin and um, they managed his separation anxiety for his this entire life. And I mean, you know, kudos to them. But what happened was I realized when I started taking separation anxiety, I was doing exactly what I'd say a lot of trainers and, and professionals, dog professionals are doing is, well, let's stuff a Kong. Let's get them used to a crate. Uh, let's maybe, you know, ask the vet about some rescue remedy or something like that. Right. Um, and, uh, or just get rescue remedy type thing. And, um, and I felt like I had no real standard operating procedure for what I would be doing with separation anxiety. So I was just as sort of miffed and, and confused as everybody else. But because I had had some success with separation anxiety, you know, everybody thinks San Francisco is a big city, but it, but it's just, it's just, it's a small uh, city when it comes to the dog training world. Um, so everybody started referring their separation anxiety clients to me. And I was like, well, if I'm going to be doing this, I guess I better figure out what I'm doing. Uh, so I read every research paper. I did every, you know, every combination of everything that I could come up with over the years. And, um, and I will say, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent, what I ended up doing was um, being very transparent with my clients and saying, hey, I'm not sure that I know the answer to this problem, um, but we'll work on it together. And if we need to switch things up, we'll switch things up. 
Um, so I, I really tried to be an open book and say, I, I don't know if I know how to fix this, but I'm going to try. Uh, and, and we, over the, over the years, it turned out that I saw, oh, these things do work and these things don't work. Uh, as I, I mean, I basically practiced on clients, right? But with their permission, obviously, um, because no one else would take them. <laughs> uh, and so, I mean, that's how this all evolved over the years. What's really interesting to me there is it seems like there was a period of deliberate attempt to master this specialty, right? This separation anxiety. And maybe that's something people can learn from. You know, you said there was a period where you were trying to figure this out and you were reading all the books and, and, you know, learning as much as you could. And then from, from basically putting, investing the time in there, now you've got to the point where you have a standard operating procedure, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. And I like that. That's a really good point because I think that, um, we all go into this. We start in, in dog training at some point in time with <clears throat> some level of understanding, but not yet mastery. Um, and I feel like we, we, it's a learning process. Um, and when I say standard operating procedure, I want to make sure that I, uh, sort of clarify that. I mean, every single dog that I work with or any of the CSATs work with, um, their plans are completely individualized to that dog. Um, but we do know that we're following sort of a general process of desensitization and gradual introduction to absence rehearsals, right? Uh, and there's, there's a process within which we work. Um, but uh, each client is handled completely individually so that we're not there's no there's no cookie cutter aspect to this problem and nor is there to most i would say right and and i was hoping you could help us a little bit for the people that are in that phase that you spoke about you know where we're doing the stuffed kongs we're doing the crates we're doing the rescue remedy you know where do we go what are, what are we missing right where do we go with this because i know i certainly have that problem in my mind when I try to think about separation anxiety, you know, I start thinking about how would I address other problems? You know, would I counter condition the dog? But how do I counter condition the dog without um, the Kong, for example, becoming like a poisoned cue, right? Like the Kong, exactly. the Kong representing that I'm about to leave instead of the other way around. How do you deal with these problems? What I know that you said that it is so individualistic, but can you give us something there? Uh, oh, absolutely, I can. Uh, and I'm so glad that you're so clever to realize how the Kong can be a completely poisoned cue. Uh, so many of our clients come to us and say, well, I started with a Kong and he would eat it. And then three days later or one week later, he would no longer eat it. And so I switched to a bully stick. And then a week later, he wouldn't eat the bully stick. And then a week later, I switched to a, you know, marrow bone for you know raw and he, and then a week later he wouldn't eat that and they just start escalating up the the chart and of we the should food hierarchy. we should probably explain that for people that don't understand that right like the association is made backwards in correct you know you what you want is that the dog associates you leaving with good stuff happening but if you do it in in the way that um your clients have been doing or your sorry not your clients but you know what i mean like people do yes. do it is 
um, by leaving the Kong and then going out, then you make the association backwards and the dog realizes, oh God, I've got a Kong. They're about to go. And then you're, you're not achieving what you intend to. Right. I'm glad that you, you brought that up. Um, indeed, what happens is if we <clears throat> leave the dog for any amount of time that they're unable to handle successfully without feeling stress, then all we're doing is creating a cue that says, by the way, you're about to experience distress right now. And that would be the Kong or the bully stick or the whatever else they're giving the dog, right? Uh, and so what we actually do, uh, and, and I will make this caveat, um, I've been a positive reinforcement trainer. Like I said, I went through Gene Donaldson's Academy and, and, and have gone through other um, uh, exceptional programs as well. Um, and, um, so, you know, I'm the first to shout from the mountaintops that, you know, use food in training. Food is the best thing. However, um, and I don't know the best word to use other than to say, um, that when we are leaving a dog, if we are leaving them for over the amount of time that, they will be when if they will be experiencing stress, our antecedent arrangement is wrong. And what I mean by antecedent arrangement is we're giving them something like a Kong, let's say, and then prevent presenting an aversive, which is being gone. Uh, and that's why we get that poisoned cue, right? So what we decided to do, or I should say I decided to do uh, many years ago, was um, for, for a few reasons. Um, I decided that I would start with just open the door, close the door. Open the door, walk out the door, come back in. Uh, no Kong, no bully stick, no, you know, marrow bone. Um, and... Uh, and basically our goal was to get the dog to be like, and we never try to aspire to this typically in dog training, but to get the dog bored with like, oh my gosh, mom is doing that stupid thing again where she opens and closes the door and she walks out. My mother is crazy. <laughs> she just keeps walking out and coming back in and walking out and coming back in. And we want to get the dog bored with that process, right? Um, the problem with having um, the Kong first um, is that we get, there's a few things. Number one, some dogs won't even, you know, engage in food if they're stressed anyway. Number two, um, we've got, as I mentioned, the antecedent arrangement wrong. So we're saying, here's a food item, and then I'm going to do something aversive, which is leaving you for too long. Uh, number three, it gives us a non-organic read on... Um, on the absence. So for some dogs that will eat the Kong, let's say, and knock on wood, I don't mean any offense to Kong. Kong is a fabulous company. I'm just using them as an example because that's what we all sort of refer to. Um, but, um, but if the dog is willing and able to eat the Kong while while alone for say five minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes, but then the moment the Kong is empty, the dog starts to show distress, all we've done is create a distraction. We haven't actually started to address the problem. 
Um, so we actually start with very minuscule exits and entries, uh, teaching the dog that, you know, when I walk out for five seconds and come back, there's nothing to be alarmed about. And sometimes the first three days, five days, seven days, whatever, you know, the dog is like, whoa, you're leaving. Oh, oh yeah, you're back. Whoa, you're leaving. So we want to take it from this, uh-oh, 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 to this ho-hum, 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 right? She's doing that thing again. Uh, and from there, we can gradually expand upon those absences. So, And so that's the premise. We're making a decision to abandon counter conditioning right now and go for systematic desensitization does counter conditioning ever come back into the into the program it can it can um i will say one of the things that is interesting is that it doesn't come back as much as we would expect it would um a lot of dogs get so sort of bored with the process that they're like yeah yeah i'll just sleep through this and then when we decide to introduce or reintroduce as it may be um some sort of interactive feeding toy um they will often be like oh and i'm up and i'm chewing and i'm rolling the ball around you know the treat ball around and stuff and i'm like and then they're like wait a second and mom's gone rather than this just very relaxed state of when mom leaves it's boring it's just boring the, the reason i bring it up is because obviously there are advantages to counter conditioning that's why counter conditioning huge is, is huge yes yeah, it's, it's the favored method for reactivity and all these other kind of problems absolutely it, in this in the way that you can take a dog that say doesn't like other dogs and you can get them to the point where they actually enjoy other dogs because you through this process kind of conditioning and that's one of the downfalls of desensitization is the furthest you can basically go is neutral right like you you just get to the point where the dog is just okay i don't mind this anymore yeah i i'm gonna i'm gonna play devil's advocate here and say that i disagree because um i think desensitization alone is um is you know, counter conditioning and desensitization is like peanut butter and jelly, right? We're just, we just assume they go together because they, they marry so well. Uh, it's rice and beans, it's peanut butter and jelly, whatever it is, right? Um, but, um, but with straight desensitization, when you get the dog in, for lack of a better term, I oftentimes use bored, but when you get the dog bored with your coming and going, they will get to the point where they're like, you know, I think this is a great time to take a nap <laughs> uh, or a great time to just, you know. Um, and so do I necessarily want the dog to be super excited about my leaving? You know, no, I think I'd maybe rather them just be like, oh, leaving time means it's a great time to take a nap. Uh, and, um, so, um, however, I will say you're right. We do oftentimes after we've reached a certain amount of duration, say 30 minutes or 60 minutes, um, we will introduce a feeding toy and see if it is a positive for the dog. And if it is a positive for the dog, then fantastic. Um, but that has to be integrated a bit later so that we, so that we're not using it simply as a distraction tool, but we're adding it as, as a, an associative tool or as a, as a, you know, something that the dog, you know, has to do while left alone. 
Um, most dogs that do not have separation anxiety, by the way, they're not like jumping around playing and having a good time when left alone. They are napping. Uh, and so even if they get their cookies when they, you know, right when mom is leaving, they, you know, eat their toy or they eat their cookies and then they go and nap. Uh, and I think that is kind of our goal. Um, not necessarily to have them be like, woohoo, I love this alone time, you know? Um, I, I don't, I don't know if that is our goal. Right? The, the, the reason I bring it up is not because I, I want my dogs to throw a party as I walk out the door, right? It's because the advantage of having a positive, um, emotional response or that is you've basically got money in the bank, haven't you? Right. So if the dog Indeed. does have a negative response, well, you have a little bit of a buffer. Whereas with the neutral, you're kind of skating on thin ice, aren't you? And so I can kind of, it's just pros and cons. You know, I can see, I can see where you're coming from. Right, right. Um, I would say that we're not skating on thin ice because one of the things that we're really doing is being so careful about the gradual and systematic process that the dog is never left for longer than they can handle. And, um, and when you come back, they're like, oh, yeah, you're back. Yeah, I was napping. And so it is a positive experience for the dog. Um, I, um, I, I will fully admit to the fact that my, um, senior dog who is now passed, um, she would like be shoving us out the door because she wanted her interactive feeding toys. Right. And so, I, you know, knowing what I know, I still gave her interactive feeding toys. And now my little dog sleeping over my shoulder there, uh, um, who has, who, who came on board with separation anxiety. Um, she does get an interactive feeding toy when I leave. Um, but as soon as it's done, she settles and lies down and sleeps and that's what most dogs will do and and if settling and sleeping is a reinforcer then that kind of is counter conditioning isn't it it is right 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 um anyway i wanted to get to some of the myths around separation anxiety as well because i've heard you speak about some really interesting stuff that kind of gave me pause and without maybe prompting you at all are there some myths that that stick out to you that you hear all the time um, that you can bust for us. <laughs> there are, uh, there are, there's, um, I think the biggest, probably the biggest myth um, that, and, or maybe not the biggest, but the one that makes me the most insane um, are there's two, but um, is that um, you being the client, um, caused your dog separation anxiety. And that is absolutely not true. Um, we are separation anxiety is, has been the most studied dog disorder in the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, and there are more peer reviewed studies on separation anxiety, uh, than there are on any other canine disorder. Um, and, um, there are in, in every single one of those studies, while there's only a few that are starting to, 
uh, trickle into the potential for a genetic predisposition for this disorder and finding the correct sort of, uh, I'm going to say this word wrong. Oh my gosh. For all of you, the geneticists out there, forgive me. Uh, haplotype. Is that how you say it? You're not a geneticist. I'm, I'm in good, I'm in good company. Um, but they, they, anyway, they've, they've basically found, um, a genetic marker, um, that, um, just like they found with, Dobermans who flank suck, um, and uh, uh, English. Um, no, what are the other ones? The, bull terriers. The, the bull, bull terriers. Thank you. That spin, right? Um, um, they found the genetic marker that pre- pre- preceded that um, behavior, and it looks like they're finding that in separation anxiety as well. Um, so, I want people, if there's any myth that I can bust, I want people to be absolved of the guilt that they feel that they say, Oh, well, I spoil my dog, I let my dog sleep in my bed. You know what? If you want your dog to sleep in your bed, your dog can sleep in your bed. It is not, if Honestly, if sleeping in your bed, in a person's bed, caused separation anxiety, we would have like 98% separation anxiety in the world. Okay, maybe not quite that high, but uh, we would have a lot more separation anxiety than we do Okay, today, right? so a lot of people are breathing a sigh of relief now. What was the second big myth that you were itching to tell us? That medications are the last resort. Um. Medications um, can be very, very, and I know that some people are going to bristle at that because some people really don't feel pro-medication or pro-pharmacology, but there is a welfare issue that is happening with these dogs, and they are suffering. And if we can mitigate that in some way and not only help the dog, but help the, you know, help the dog feel better, but, you know, help the client get through this process even more quickly. Um, I think that it is, it is an important step to consider. Um, And those are probably my two biggest, you know, I mean, there, I could go on and on and on about all sorts of myths, but, um, um, and, and one of the funniest ones I'm going to, I'm going to throw out there, leave a t-shirt behind that smells like you. Wait a second. Doesn't the whole house smell like you already? I mean, like, what, how would that one work? I don't get it. <laughs> so when I hear people say, I hear people do that when say they're going on holiday or something, the dog's going somewhere else. Oh yeah. No, that's different. Like I always, when I, when I have to leave my dog at, at someone else's, which I don't do anymore with this little girl but uh if if i leave my dog in someone else's environment sure i will bring her personal bed or a t-shirt or something that you know uh um so that there's familiar items in in the new place but when it's in your own home the whole home (laughs) smells like you so that t-shirt is not going to do a whole lot one that i heard you talk about is this idea of like shadowing so if the dog is following you around the house a lot of people say there's a good chance that they're getting anxious when you leave i heard you say that that's that's not the case that's not the case um the um, I have a study that um, I'm conducting right now with Texas Tech University and Dr. Nathan Hall. Um, shout out to him and uh, to Aaron 
um, that are working with me on that. Um, but I will also say that there have been studies about shadowing um, um, and our study is showing the same thing that there is, I think the best way to say it is that it is not diagnos diagnostically significant. Um, so sure, a dog that follows you around the house is there, you know, you would say, hmm, should I consider that there's something going on here? Um, but in a study done by um, uh, Nicholas Dodman and, and, and Flanagan, uh, Gerard Flanagan, um, they did, and it was, a, it was quite an extensive study um, between separation anxiety dogs and non-separation anxiety dogs. And they showed that 64% of non-separation anxiety dogs followed, shadowed, Velcro dogs, et cetera, right? Now, it was higher in the separation anxiety dogs. It was 84% in the separation anxiety dogs. But still, you can see that that doesn't mean that it's diagnostically significant. That means, okay, maybe I should look at video or maybe I should look at other symptoms. But a dog following you around the house does not mean that the dog has separation anxiety. And I will add, one of the things that I have found amazing over the last, you know, many years of doing this is that when we get the dog through their separation anxiety and the dog is happy being alone or certainly relaxed and sleeping or, you know, hanging out on the couch or whatever, um, that they still follow their owner or their guardian around from room to room. Like it doesn't necessarily mean that that is a separation anxiety trait it often means, hey, where are you going? What you doing? Is there food involved? <laughs> Another thing that you said that fascinated me and like really stopped me, you know, really made me think, <laughs> I almost wanted to kind of argue, although I'm sure that you're right, was, <laughs> was that you said that there's no proof that other dogs help. Right. So like a lot of people think um, that if the dog's got separation anxiety, if they get a dog that is calm and happy with being left, then there's a chance that that might help to resolve their separation anxiety. And you're saying that the science doesn't support that either. The science doesn't support that. Um, I'm not going to say that there's not. So so I understand you're like, oh, I want to argue that because um, there there are definitely anecdotal um um, cases where someone said, oh, gosh, my dog is suffering. I'm going to get another dog. And they get a, another dog and the dog, the, the first dog is just fine. Um, so I'm not going to say that it never, ever helps. Um, as a matter of fact, there's no absolutes in behavior. We know that, right? Um, but um, the percentage of which I don't exactly know, the studies kind of contradict each other so I'm, I'm not going to quote a percentage but the percentage is quite low of um of the dogs that will be helped by getting a second dog or or a second animal for that matter a cat or whatever um, um and um and one of the things that i always precaution my clients about with regard to getting a second dog is you know you've got a dog with separation anxiety let's let's get this figured out before we add, you know, a, a, another 
aspect to the mix because that that second dog will have to go to the vet sometimes without that dog or that second dog, you know. So, I mean, if you're trying to get sort of a service animal, if you will, for your <laughs> first dog, um, just to sort of fix the problem, you haven't fixed the problem. Yeah, it kind of um, reminds me of the lady that swallowed the fly. Do you remember that poem? I don't. Oh, my gosh. Now you have to share it. I can't remember the whole thing because it's like a, it goes on and on and on, but... It's about a lady that swallows a fly, and then to get the fly, she swallows a spider, and then to get the spider, she swallows... You know what I mean? Like she... Oh, indeed. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Now I get it. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, that was interesting to me because I, I can kind of understand that when it comes to separation anxiety, right? Like if the dog, maybe they want to be with one particular person, if that person's not there, they're freaking out. But I wondered if it was more helpful in what we might call isolation distress, right? Like the dog just doesn't want to be alone. But I don't know if you know anything about that or... Yeah, um, we have not seen it be more successful, even with isolation distress. Um, It seems to be human related. Um, And the second dog does not typically, sometimes it does, um, but does not typically resolve the problem. Um, I will tell you, we had um, recently, I had a, a case that was you know, that, that sort of challenged my brain where, um, this one dog, um, whenever his one doggy friend, I mean, he had multiple doggy friends, but only this one doggy friend, if he stayed with him when he was alone, he was okay. Any of his other doggy friends, he would still be freaking out. So, I mean, it makes you wonder, you know, where, where, what the, What's going Gosh, on? Gosh, what, right. what's going on, right? Um, it's but sad, for but most, sweet. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah, it is. I know, I know. Obviously, this doggy friend was very near and dear to him. Um, uh, but uh, I think that um, I think that it's very worthwhile for for guardians to realize that at least getting a bit of a handle on the separation anxiety before introducing a second dog is, is a, is an appropriate measure to, to go for. When it comes to separation anxiety, are all dogs curable? You know, can you, if, if we can use that word, you know, can, can we get to a point where we can leave dogs for reasonable periods of time without symptoms of anxiety? I love this question, and um, I want to start by saying that I have a bias uh, on this question um, because of what I do. Um, so everybody has to accept that my bias exists uh, and take it for face value. Um, I think that for the most part, um, obviously, there's never a hundred percent guarantee in behavior. Never, ever, ever. Uh, and some dogs are just, you know, wired really difficult, you know, in a difficult way and, and have so much anxiety, not just in their separation anxiety, but global and everything else. Um, but one of the cases that changed me personally was, um, an example where I realized that, the cases that I was not successful with were people that were like, I've, I've been doing this now for two months or, you know, three months or whatever. And they're like, I, I, 
you know, we're only at 45 minutes of an absence and obviously it's not working, you know? And I would be like, wait, 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 no, no, it's, it's seriously, it's working. It's just going really slow. And they'd be like, I can't, I don't have the bandwidth anymore. I don't have the, you know, ability to do this anymore. And, um, and obviously over the years, I've been very, you know, deflated by some of those cases and, and, and very concerned by some of those cases. And there was one case that um, I had that sort of re reprogrammed my thinking um, and it allowed me to understand that when people have the bandwidth and the ability to continue to work on this, there's always the potential to get better. Uh, and I worked with this one case for almost a couple of years, uh, almost two years to the day. And I will never forget them uh, um, because they said, I know that we're not there yet, but, you know, if we just work a little harder, if we just do a little more, if we just adjust a few things and, um, and they were ultimately successful. Now, not everybody wants to put two years into behavior modification, obviously. Um, um, but, uh, nor can they, but, um, I, I am of the ilk that all of these dogs can get to a certain level of recovery. Um, if you, if we can call it that, um, or, you know, resolution, um, and some dogs are like, yeah, my max is three or four hours and I'm done, you know, but, uh, and some dogs are like, yeah, I'm fine for, for more than that. But, um, I really do feel like we can, as long as we don't put a time limitation on like, okay, I've got to have this fixed in two months. I mean, and I think that probably relates quite well to, let's say reactivity, like, how many people work on their dog's reactivity for a year or more before they're starting to see like, oh, now my dog is fine and doesn't explode at every dog that walks around the corner and, you know, maybe wiggles his tail a little bit, even though he's not really able to meet the dogs and, you know, nose to nose or whatever, you know, I mean, um, but I think separation anxiety is a taller order because we're asking people to do, um, you know, a lot in order to in order to get through the process. And when I say a lot, I will say we actually only have people work on separation anxiety about 30 minutes a day, five days a week. So we we, we try to minimize the the overwhelming aspect of it. But um, but, you know, it still is a lot. I think the reason that so many people are scared by separation anxiety is because it is a little bit more all-consuming in the sense that people have to go to work, right? Like, that is just the cultural norm. People have to go and do stuff, right? Whereas with reactivity, it's just like, okay, you know, however long I'm going to walk my dog, this is going to be a problem. Whereas with separation anxiety, there's a whole lifestyle thing. How can I fit this in? Am I going to have to take time off work? How do you deal with those kind of issues? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked this question because um, I think it's a really important one. Um, I will say, uh, I want to say two things about this. I'm pulling up some numbers here really quickly, if I can do it in a 
quick fashion. I may not be able to do it. Oh yeah, I think I can. Um, <laughs> I'm a numbers girl, you know, that whole <laughs> statistics background. Um, so just under 50%, so uh, 48.9% of the people that contact us, meaning me and the CSATs, um, say that they are absolutely unequivocally able to not leave their dog alone. And that's without having any reason or knowledge as to why we're asking them that question. So already people are either already doing it or they're happy to say, you bet, I will figure out a way that I won't leave my dog alone. So basically 50%, right? Uh, the next um, sort of category of maybe is closer, is about, 30 some odd percent, uh, 36 percent, it looks like here. Um, uh, and, um, and they say, yeah, I can probably figure out how to not leave my dog alone. And the smallest percentage of people that contact us um, that say, no, there's no way I can leave my dog alone is under 15 percent. Um, so, I, I want people to hear that because that is without them knowing anything about what we're going to ask them, anything about what we're going to, you know, require of them. They say, you know, basically 50% is already saying, yeah, no problem. I can do that. Um, it is not easy, um, but the creative solutions that we can uh, come up with are vast and um, it, it does take a village, right? Um, and some people need to find solutions that are not uh, financially taxing. And some people are like, yeah, my dog is friendly and loves to go to daycare every day. That's fine, you know. Um, but some people need to find, you know, retired folks that will just sit with their dog for, you know, while they're at work or they need to find college students or, you know, that, that are like, hey, if I can raid your refrigerator and get 10 bucks for gas, I'm all in, you know. Uh, you know, I mean, there, there's lots of creative solutions that we have found um, to get through the protocol. And remember, it's not like, you know, I mean, I was, I gave you the example of that client that I worked with for two years. That's a rarity. There's not many that we have to go that long, right? Um, um, and the normal question is how long does it take? And I understand that. And I, I actually won't give you an estimation because it could be very short or can be very long. Um, but um, I do feel that with some creative digging and now we have things like social media where we can like post the most adorable picture of the dog and say, Hey, I need help. This is what I'm going through. You know, who can you help me find to watch my dogs on my dog on Thursday or, or Sunday or whatever and create this sort of village environment. Um, so we talk them through how to figure that out and, and we, we figure it out all the time. I can't remember if it was you that, told a story about um man someone managing to find a neighbor that could i don't know if this is going to jog any memories for you <laughs> find a neighbor that could um look after their dog during the day i can't remember if they um 
put like a bulletin up or something in their apartment building. Oh yes, uh, um, yeah. Well, I mean, th- there's probably many people that have said that before, but um, we do that. Uh, and uh, I think one of the stories that you may have heard too. I don't know if you do. You have this um, where you are. We have something called Meals on Wheels. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I've heard of that. Yeah. Okay. So these are people that go to retirement homes uh, and people that are not able to maybe mobility wise or whatever are not able to get out. Um, and uh, one of our, uh, our certified separation anxiety trainers went to the Meals on Wheels uh, locally and said, here's a flyer with a cute picture of this, you know, dog. And can you distribute this amongst your um your your constituents um and then it was so popular that they had to create like an acuity type calendar to schedule everybody because everyone was like i want to take care of the dog i want to take care of the dog i want to take care of the dog you know uh so i mean obviously you have to vet people appropriately but um i i think people are really interested and willing and able to help when they are in the situation that they're like, well, I work from home or I'm retired or I'm, you know, whatever it is. Uh, You know, if I need to cover a day here or a few hours there while you go to the grocery store or, you know, whatever people, people are out there. And I, I want people to know that it feels insurmountable. I know that it feels insurmountable. I totally get that but it is not insurmountable it's really awesome to hear such creative stories as well i i love that you know if you it seems like if you're really motivated to make progress on this and you're creative enough about finding ideas of people that can help then you can solve this problem you know and you get someone on board uh, like yourself in the spirit of creative and quirkiness I want to go through some of the things that I've seen online that are a bit out there as solutions to separation anxiety. And you can tell me if, if they're terrible ideas or not. (laughs) So the one, Oh goodness, I'm going to be, I hope I'm not, you know, dishing anything or anybody, but okay, go ahead. I'm, I'm game. Okay. I've got two in mind, right? So the first one that went viral most recently was, this photo that someone had basically constructed this (laughs) you know what i mean i know exactly well let me tell the story because you're (laughs) because no one else knows exactly so they they constructed almost like a mannequin of uh, a person and left them sat on the toilet so that the dog and and the caption is we don't obviously we can't verify this but the caption said that this solved their problem with separation anxiety because the dog knows, oh, the dog feels like or takes comfort in the fact that there's someone there, even though really it's just a mannequin. <laughs> I, you know, I know that uh, Nick can see my face right now. Uh, and my face is, is my eyeballs are rolling. Um, well, if this were a solution to separation anxiety, um, quite frankly, I would be thrilled because uh, it would put me out of business in a good way. It would it would solve every dog separation anxiety. Um, I think this is no less akin to you know having a t shirt with your scent on it, um, but 
I, I I can't I can't, I certainly can't comment on their claim that it solved the dog separation anxiety, uh, and it and to me it looked like a it was a I think it was a Weimariner that um, um, was in the photo or maybe it was a Vishla I'm not sure, um, but I mean it looked like the dog was just curled up in the bathroom next to the fake human being sitting on the toilet, um, and. Um, I wish that would work. And, you know, if you want to try it, go for it. And, uh, and then after it maybe doesn't work, then you have to consider other options. Okay, so you're not going to be stocking fake humans anytime soon? <laughs> no, no. I, do, I don't have a whole bunch of fake humans in my garage that I'm going to be shipping out to my clients. No, I don't. Okay, so the other one that I saw which was interesting was like almost like an AI solution, like almost like, um, you know, those uh, things that people get, those like treat and trains or whatever they're called, where it's like a okay. remote, yep. you press a button or whatever, and the reward is delivered to the dog. And um, I'm not quite sure how it works. I should have looked this up. Um, but essentially, you leave it there with your dog, and it rewards the dog at certain intervals. Right? Okay. And the article I was reading actually almost presented it as a little bit doom and gloom. Like this is what society has come to that, that we're having, that our robots are forming bonds with dogs or whatever. Oh. But I, I, I wondered what your opinion on was on something like that. So uh, I have sort of good and bad news on that. Um, I think that the treat and train, the pet tutor, the clever pet, um, several of these um, so these interactive feeding toys that are um, uh, remote um, can be very effective for a lot of training needs. Um, if you have a dog, let's say, that barks at passerbys, you know, people and dogs passing by the window, and you have a remote in your pocket that every time you can reward them remotely when they come, when they, they go, oh my gosh, there's a person. Oh, wait, there's a reward, right? We can counter condition very effectively and very uh, succinctly with a t from a timing perspective rather than being like, oh, shoot, I'm going to run to the refrigerator and fish out my hot dog bait bag somewhere and blah, 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 you know. I mean, you can, you can put a verbal cue on it. You can put a, 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 a noise cue on it or whatever uh, um, because the, some of these have a, a, a sound cue that goes, you know, boop, and then the, the food dispenses. I think the concern with separation anxiety is um, not that they, those interactive um, um, feeding toys aren't potentially useful. Um, and I have worked with some dogs that that was the answer. Um, but it doesn't necessarily overcome the anxiety <clears throat> if it's um if it's if you're still not following a very succinct gradual incremental pro protocol right so oftentimes what happens is that people will be like oh the dog is distracted by the food great i can leave for 20 minutes and just distract him with food 
Um, but if we're not watching the dog's body language and figuring out where his threshold is, we're not actually addressing the anxiety. We're just still giving a distraction. And for some dogs, I mean, she's like 10 pounds, my little dog in the background here, by the way, um, I'm pointing, you guys can't see that, um, is 10 pounds. Like I couldn't, I couldn't feed her from a feeder for four hours without like having her you know, explode or bloat or something like that. Right. So it's not like we can just keep them, um, you know, eating for, for the entire absence duration. So it's kind of, you view it more as a tool as opposed to a solution. I do. Right. Okay. Exactly. Um, you said something then about body language, you know, we have to keep an eye on the dog's body language, but I also heard you say that body language isn't, a complete sign that the dog isn't anxious about being left, right? I think you mentioned a study in, in the past about, um, you know, well, maybe you would explain it better than me. Uh, yeah, no, there was a study. Uh, there's, there's been a, actually a couple of studies. Um, one of them um, is, um, and if I can find it quickly, I'll post it because I think it's an interesting, um, I'll, 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 I mean, I'll, um, I'll send it to you. So, um, but um, there was a BBC program, yay BBC, um, that was done um, that um, while some of the training in the, um, in that program was not exactly what I would do, um, I did feel like one of the things that was so fantastic was that they did this study on cortisol levels as uh, as an indicator of the stress that people that, that, that not people uh, the dogs were um, were experiencing, um, and they found that the um, cortisol levels were elevated for even dogs that weren't displaying um, overt separation anxiety traits. Okay. Um, And I found that fascinating um, because I do feel like, and I've got this experience with many clients and, and, and even my own dog where um, I think that some dogs are, um, or, you know, my own dog previously, now she's, she's good, but, um, but some dogs are sort of silently suffering, if you will, right? Uh, or just, you know, maybe just pacing, just whining a little bit. And so the, 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 the client, the guardian doesn't know that they're really, you know, cause there's no destruction. There's no elimination. There's no vocalization that the neighbors are complaining about. Uh, and so I think that it's really important to realize that yes, some dogs are potentially suffering um, sort of in silence. Um, how we address that. How do people know that? How do people, you know, dis- discreetly, you know, sort of watch their dog and, you know, via camera and figure that out. Um, you know, it's it's kind of up to each and every individual and what they feel that they want to tackle. What about people that have heard that now that, you know, their dog might not be showing body language that suggests they're stressed, 
but they still might be anxious and are now thinking, oh God, you know, what if my dog has separation anxiety but isn't showing the signs of it? Is there any way that we can kind of get an indication of whether our dog is stressed or not? Yeah. Yeah, I, I thank you for asking that because I, I didn't want to freak people out on what I just said. So I, I'm glad I'm glad you you followed up on that. Um, I, I I do think that um, one of the most important things to do is videotape your dog um, when he or she is alone, um, and if you see discomfort in the sense of, you know, destruction, elimination, vocalization, uh, drooling, you know, vomiting, anything, any of those, you know, sort of overt um, signs. Yeah, it's something that has to be addressed. Um, if your dog is, is simply, you know, looking out the window, kind of wanting and waiting for you to come home. Um, well, of course, there's something we can do to make that a little bit better. Um, I think that that dogs are social beings and they don't necessarily enjoy or always want to be left alone. Uh, and so, you know, I'd love for people to make their dog's experience in alone time a bit happier, but, um, but can we expect that they are like, Yahoo! get out of the house. I want to be alone. I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, uh, not for every dog anyway. There's kind of a two pronged thing here for people that, maybe our dog trainers and they want to know more about how to solve separation anxiety cases and increase their confidence in that area. Where can they find that information? But also for dog owners that maybe they have a dog that has separation anxiety, where can they find the information to help them? Great. Thank you for asking. So um, there's a couple of answers to that Um, for dog trainers or dog professionals, be it vets, or, or, um, or trainers or behaviorists. Um, we have a certified separation anxiety training program that we train other um, professionals to work with separation anxiety in a very, very succinct manner. Uh, it's a really intensive course. Uh, it, it's, it's about 13 weeks. Um, I think we're going to bump it out to be about 14 weeks now because we're fe- we're feeling like we we I, we actually need a little extra time. But um, <clears throat> and um, and you can find that on my website, which is MalenaDMartini.com. Um, I will say for dog professionals that um, you know are not interested in doing separation anxiety all the time and, and don't need the, you know, intensive course. Um, there is a, a program that um, we've created. It's an online program called Mission Possible. Uh, and I've actually created a special discount code for you, Nick, uh, so that people can get a, de- a discount if they, <clears throat> if they go through um, this this podcast um, and the the discount code is Nick B uh, N I C K B uh, and it's all capitals okay so but uh, hopefully you can you can I can make sure that's in the show notes so people can just click through to that 
Yeah. Okay, great. Um, and um, <clears throat> it's a $99 online course um, that um, takes them through sort of the whole protocol process. Uh, and so even if trainers just want to get a base understanding of that, um, as well as but that was specifically designed for guardians of dogs that, that have separation anxiety. So for those dogs that are experiencing this and their guardians, that's what this is for. And there are places throughout the course that people can ask questions and post comments. And um, so they, they, aren't, they aren't just in a vacuum. It's not just like they're reading everything and not getting any feedback. They can get feedback and they can get additional ad hoc support at a, a reduced rate as well. Um, and then finally, if someone uh, from a guardian perspective is really like, I just want someone to take care of it all for me and I don't want any guesswork and I just want someone to tell me what to do on a day-to-day -day basis, we can do that and we do do that. Um, and they can go through, again, the MelanaDMartini.com website uh, under the four owners tab and... Um, and they can fill out a, a questionnaire that will put them in touch with one of us and, and we can work with them personally. Well, thanks. For and the cool thing is that it's remote too. So um, we don't have to be in your neighborhood to do this. Yeah, that is awesome because I think that a lot of people will be thinking, I, I don't know if I'm going to have someone local to me or maybe I live in the middle of nowhere or I live in a country where there aren't really any dog trainers, but you're... Uh, the remote training completely solves that problem. It really does. And we have, we have clients all over the world. There are, there are some countries that we work in that I didn't know existed. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been so much fun talking to you. Oh, it's been great, Nick. You're just really a wonderful host. And I, I so appreciate you having me here. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to join us on the podcast discussion group on Facebook. Just search for Dog Talk with Nick Benger podcast discussion group. And as always, you can grab the show notes for this episode at nickbenger.com slash Malena hyphen Demartini. Also, you could help me out greatly by leaving a review of this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. I would hugely appreciate that. Thanks, guys. <laughs>